Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Last week we looked at the Old Testament and tried to give an overview of God's plan for his nation, the children of Israel. Remember we said the Old Testament is a story of a nation. The New Testament is a story of a man. The Old Testament is preparing for the event, the coming of Christ. The New Testament is the, the explanation of that event. About 400 years of prophetic silence between the Old and New Testament And then we have the Word of God coming and letting people know that Jesus is on the scene. John's Gospel uses these words in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. Then chapter 1, verse 14. That Word, the Word, became flesh and took up residence among us. And we observed his glory, the glory is of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, in the beginning, the Word was there. And the Word made his dwelling, his flesh, his tabernacle among us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the last part of John's Gospel, verse twenty, chapter 21, verse 25, he says another interesting thing about the life of Christ that he writes about. He says, there are so many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would have been written. John writes his perspective of the life of Christ. Matthew writes his, Mark writes his, Luke writes his, and you have four different writers. They're called the synoptic gospels or the gospel writers giving a synopsis of the life of Christ. And there's another way of referring to that. It's called the harmony of the gospels where you take all of those four gospels and you put them together and you have a full picture of the life of Christ. Each one of these gospel writers is writing from a different perspective, seeing Christ's life and, and activities from a different angle, yet they're still writing about the same true event, and what we have is the Word of God. So let's look at, first of all, the four gospels, the synoptics. Number one, the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. Here's Matthew's desire, we believe, in writing this book, is to present Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew writes to present Jesus as the Messiah, writing to Jewish Christians, trying to present to them that this Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic Messiah that was forecast to come. So that's Matthew's goal, writing the fulfillment of Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy in Christ. Then Mark's perspective. He is writing to let us know that Jesus is powerful. Jesus is powerful. He emphasizes more action than he does teaching. You find Matthew writing a lot in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Mark is just all about this happened, that happened, this happened, that happened. If you read Mark's Gospel, you find he uses the word immediately and suddenly all the time. Uh, Some say it's a literary device. I think it's just the way Mark talked, the way he wrote. He wanted us to know that Jesus was up to something powerful. Number three, we have the the Gospel of Luke. 
Luke's perspective is writing to show us that Jesus is human. He emphasizes that Jesus identifies with us in our humanity. Most likely written, it's written to Theophilus, most likely a Roman official. So Mark is saying he's powerful. Luke is saying he's human. And as you read the Gospel of Luke from his perspective, you see that played out in his Gospel. And then John, and we already read it, his emphasis is to let people know that Jesus is God. The deity of Christ is his emphasis. So Matthew, he's the Messiah. Mark, he's powerful. Luke, he's man. He's human, fully human. And then John, he's God. Jesus is the God-man. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God, 100% man. The God-man. So you have those four writers experiencing, looking, or listening to, to firsthand testimony to write their account of the life of Christ. The four Gospels. Remember we said that the New Testament is broken out into history and then letters and then, and then the book of Revelation prophetic. We're in the history section right now. So the Gospels lay it out. And let's look at Jesus' life. And there are a whole lot of different ways to, to uh, take these Gospels and put them together. But, but I like this eight periods of his life that, will, that help me kind of see how Jesus' life uh, uh, was lived out. So the eight periods of the life of Jesus. Again, John is telling us in chapter 1 of his preexistence, but then we have in the book of Luke the description of his birth and the early years. So, first, first period of his life, his birth and those early years. Chapter 2 in Luke, you know the story. We've read it, just finished reading it recently. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, verse 4, in Galilee, to Judea, to the city, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family line of David to be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and they wrapped him in snuggly cloth and laid him in a feeding trough. And there was no room for them in the lodging place. We have the birth of Christ. And if you'll skip with me in chapter 2 of Luke to verse 52, Luke summarizes his life up to that point up before he steps on the ministry. It says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with, with God and with the people. A short description of the life of Christ before he started his public ministry. We don't have a lot of detail. We have, as the gospel writers record, him going to the temple for, for a circumcision to be presented, teaching his young boy in the temple. We have those accounts, but not much about his earthly life up until his earthly ministry, his, his uh, public ministry begins. The birth in the early years in Bethlehem, his parents take him to Egypt and then back to Nazareth. Second period of the life of Christ is preparation for ministry. Preparation for ministry. Say, so, well, I, I thought he was the God-man. I thought he, he was the Word made flesh. Does he need preparation for ministry? He needed preparation for ministry. So God describes that preparation. Look with me at the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now that's by John the Baptist or the baptizer. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. That is the, the, the uh, announcement, the proclamation of the Father's affirmation of the Son. By the way, you have the Trinity here. You have the Son. You have the voice coming from heaven. And then you have the Spirit descending. All, pictured, all, all uh, described right there in that one event. Jesus, to be prepared for ministry, identified with those who would follow him in his baptism, identifying with John by being baptized by John because John's ministry was prepare the way another is coming. I'm making a, a straight path in the wilderness. Well, look at verse 12. 
Once he is announced publicly, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels began to serve him after that time of uh, temptation. So much we could say about that, that period in the life of Christ, that, that 40 days in the temptation in the wilderness. But uh, just to remind you, as you, if you should go back and read that, how every time Satan came to him, Jesus' response was, it is written. Every time the enemy comes to us, our response is, here's what the Bible says. You, you, you combat lies and falsehood and deceit with the truth. And that's what Jesus did. So now he begins this early ministry. So number three, this period of about eight months is the early Judean ministry. He's in Judea, Samaria in this time in Judea. Uh, the first miracle at Cana, the wedding at Cana is described here. We have, uh, John describes the Samaritan woman at the well. But I want us to look at John chapter three because for me this is, this is uh, what I believe would be the best, the best uh, teaching event encounter to go to to describe uh, what happens in this period of ministry. As Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night, it's Nick at night. In verse one, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs unless you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, Verse 3, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus goes on to ask him about that, to describe that. But there's the the heart of what Jesus came to say. You must be born again. That was very simple for Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, I I don't quite understand. What does that mean? He talks about being born by the Spirit, that the the Lord himself needs to transform your life. You need to be born again. Well, that's a question everybody needs to, or a, a statement everybody needs to hear. You must be born again. That's a question to ask. Have you been born again? That term gets used a lot. I remember years ago, Chuck Colson, uh, who was one of the Watergate conspirators and was arrested and imprisoned, and, and in that whole process of all that turmoil in his life, he came to know Christ. And he started writing that, that event down in his life, how Jesus Christ had met him as, a, as a, a powerful thinking he was more powerful than anything and breaking him and, and leading him to in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so Colson writes down his memoirs, and it goes in a book, and the publishers are ready to title the book, and he says, I want it to be called Born Again. And they said, well, that title, that, everybody uses that term. That's, that's just too commonplace. We need, a, we need a real catchy title. And Colson said, no, that's what happened to me. This is, this is what the Bible says. You must be born again. He said, that's the best description of what happened to me. So they published the book with that, and it became one of those bestsellers, because that's what the, that's what the new birth is. That's what coming into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is. It's to be born again. Number four, let's look at another, the next period in the life of Christ. This two-year ministry, the bulk of this, the Galilean ministry that we have in here, Mark describing the calling of his, Jesus calling his disciples. You have Matthew describing the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitude. You have the feeding of the 5,000. You have Jesus walking on the water. But I want us to look at Mark chapter four. Because I think it is significant for us to remember today. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. And we're going to look at the storm. Jesus calming the storm. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he told them, cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat. The other boats were with him. And a fierce windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. 
But he was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? I love this. You have these sailors, and I I imagine these are tough guys. It is so bad. The storm is so bad that they're they're afraid. And they go to Jesus and say, Master, don't you care about us? This storm, we're about to to sink. The boat's being swamped, and you don't care. We're going to die. It's a pretty powerful storm, and I love this. Where was he? Verse 38 says he was sleeping on a cushion in the stern. Paraphrase, there's this storm going. The disciples are panicking. They're getting swamped, and Jesus is taking a nap. that, That strikes me as incredible. Now, he's not taking a nap because he's bored. He's not taking a nap because he doesn't care. You know why he's taking a nap? He's at peace. He's resting. It could have very well have been recorded this way. They were frantic. Jesus wasn't. They couldn't see an end to this storm, but Jesus was resting. He got up, verse 39. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? Verse 41, this is great. And they were terrified, even though he said, it's okay. Silence, be still. This is what they were terrified about. They asked one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Isn't that that great? They're, first of all, afraid of the wind and the sea. And then their rabbi who's with them commands the wind and the sea to be still. And they're in awe of that. In awe of that. Listen, when the storms come to my life, I've got to remember Jesus is at peace. He's resting. In all my turmoil, he's resting. He's trusting the Father. Can I say this to us who are Christ followers? He's trusting the Father for us because we're his. Because the Bible says he shelters us in his wings. I love the story of a monument, a statue that's put up in Alabama. The cotton bowl, the cotton uh, crop was devastated by the bowl weevil. Devastated that whole area, the part of America. Devastated it. And so the farmers had to come up with another crop because the bowl weevil destroyed everything. So they planted peanuts. Peanuts turned out to be a much more lucrative crop. So they erected this monument there. And this is what they say. It's a monument of a woman holding a, a bowl weevil over her head. And it says, in profound appreciation of the bull weevil and what it has done as the herald of prosperity, this monument was erected by the citizens of Enterprise, Coffee County, Alabama. So, did you hear what they did? They erected a monument to the pest that destroyed their cotton crop. Why? Because that opened their eyes to the fact that another crop could be raised. Now, that's pretty drastic, but it's, it's truth, isn't it? That sometimes the pest that we just can't seem to understand why God's using that so that he can get the glory. The storm, the waves, we were panicking and God's letting them know, watch this, I'm about to show you I control the waves, I control the sea. The fifth period, about a month, is another period of Jesus' life where he goes back to Judea and ministers in Judea. This is where the authorities come to arrest him and and there's a conflict begins. We have the story of the woman caught in adultery during this time, during this ministry, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want us to look at Luke chapter 10 for one of my favorites. See, since I was doing this overview, I picked on my favorites. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 38. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to him, to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care? There's another, don't you care? Can you believe we ask him that? Lord, don't you care? We know he cares. But she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve, to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. I wonder how he said that. Was it Martha, Martha, or was it Martha? I don't know. Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Verse 42, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. The one, the one thing is the necessary thing. It's the right choice. It's Mary being at the feet of Jesus. See, Martha was busy doing stuff for him or wanting others to do stuff for him. Help me, help me, help me, because I'm, I'm a servant. I'm doing the hospitality thing. Tell Mary to help me. She was busy doing stuff, activity, and Jesus says, that's okay, but the most important thing is to listen to me, to worship me. The reason I picked this story, this account, is because I need to hear this. This is a message I need all the time. That, that busyness and activity and work for the Lord is not what it's about. It's relationship with him. It's spending time with him. It's that intimate love relationship that we have with the Father through Christ, with the presence of the Spirit ministering to us. Martha, Martha, look at Mary. She's getting it. She got it. A missionary named Stuart Sachs writes a story about his ministry in Paraguay. He says, while serving in Paraguay, a Maka Indian named Raphael came to sit on my porch. And I was eating and went out to see what he wanted. And he responded, Ham Henek Met. Again, I asked, what could I do for him? But the answer was the same. I understood that what he was saying, but I didn't understand its significance. I don't want anything. I have just come near. He says, I later shared that incident with a local veteran missionary. And he explained it was Raphael's way of honoring me. He really didn't want anything. He just wanted to sit on my porch. He found satisfaction and pleasure just being near me. That's Mary, isn't it? That's Mary. Just, 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 if we could just sit on his porch and just be with him. That's what he calls us to. Let's move to the sixth section, the Perean ministry. Perea just means the, the country beyond. It's the country east of the Jordan uh, River Valley. Uh, he's in Perea and Judea during this time, about four months. And I chose another story with Mary and Martha in it. It's in chapter 11 now of John. We'll start in verse 31, I think. Book of John, verse 31. Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is sick. They send word to Jesus, come, our brother's sick, heal him, and Jesus doesn't go. Jesus waits, Lazarus dies, Jesus finally shows up, and you can imagine Mary and Martha, their um, displeasure, their concern for what had happened. Look at verse 31. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up and quickly went out. So they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. 
When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. That's Mary again. She fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you would think Mary's worshiping at the feet of Jesus, and you would think she, we've already described her as one worshiping him, that she would just have eloquent words of praise to say, but she falls at his feet in worship and says, why weren't you here? God can handle that. Did you know that? When you worship him, he can handle your hurt. He can handle your pain. He can handle your questions. Why not? Why weren't you there? And that's what she says. When Jesus saw her crying, the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. You have put him, where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. The Bible says Jesus wept. Look at verse 38 with me. Then Jesus, angering himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already decaying. It's been four days. I think the old translation said, Lord, he stinketh, right? Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believe you would see the glory of God? He's told them before that he's the resurrection and the life. Now he's showing them. So they removed the stone. The Bible says in verse 43, after this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out. Heard an old preacher say he had to say Lazarus because if he just said come out, they would have all come out of the grave. Jesus shows up and demonstrates to Mary and Martha and everybody there that he's still in control. See, God is bigger than us, and he has bigger things in mind than what we see. This is so practical. Jesus is called on to heal Lazarus. And Jesus doesn't heal Lazarus. Why? Because he's got something bigger in mind. How many times have we said, oh, Lord, heal me, heal them, heal my family member, do that. And, and God doesn't, and we wonder, what's wrong? Sometimes God is just saying, I've got something bigger in mind. If Jesus had healed Lazarus from his sickness, he wouldn't have raised Lazarus from the dead because he wouldn't have died. Remember that. He says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus said, I'm, I'm up to something bigger than that. Remember that. Another truth from this passage before I move on is that the best place to be when we're grieving is at the feet of Jesus. That's where Mary went. Just lay it out to him. Just park on his porch. Just be with him. This verse 35 is one of the shortest verses in the Bible. If you want to memorize scripture, you can memorize that one. Jesus wept. I believe there's a lot of theological uh, significance to his weeping, but for me, I believe he's weeping because they're hurting, because they're grieving, because they've lost their brother, because they don't understand. Jesus understands your pain. He cries. I love what Ken Geyer says. It is incredible that our plight could trouble his spirit and that our pain could summon his tears. He was troubled in his spirit and he wept because he cared. And he demonstrated to them, I am the resurrection and the life. I love the way Jesus operates. He doesn't just say, I'm the resurrection and the life. What does he do? He raises and gives life. He doesn't just say, I will be your peace. He gives his peace. The resurrection and the life. He he says in this passage, those who believe in me will never die. Ever. In this one translation. You don't have to fear death. Jesus took it for you. Michael Guido used to tell a story. I heard it when I was a brand new Christian. I remember it like it was yesterday when the first time I heard it. 
He's driving in a man is driving in the car with his son, and a, a bumblebee flies in the in the car, and this bee is buzzing around, and the son is panicking. And the dad reaches out and grabs the bee and lets the bee sting him. And then he lets the bee go, and the bee's flying around, and the little boy's like, he says, okay, son, it's all right. He just has one stinger, and I took the sting. I took the stinger. Now you don't have to worry about that bee. Here's what Jesus says when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, I took the sting of death. You don't have to fear death anymore. I took care of it. Now let's move to number seven, the final week. Seven days. This is the bulk of all four gospel narratives. The bulk of the, 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 the writing that we have is about this final week where Jesus arrives at Bethany and there's a triumphal entry and he weeps over Jerusalem and he throws the money changers out of the temple and he teaches in the temple and, he, and, and ultimately you have this quiet day in Bethany and then the last supper in the garden. This is all described in this section. So I want us to look at the book of Mark. Chapter 14, and just walk through these final moments of the life of Christ. It's significant today as we walk through here because at the end of this worship service, we're going to experience the Lord's Supper. We're going to commemorate his death. And it begins in Mark chapter 14, right here in verse 1. After two days, it was Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. Let me just remind you what Passover is. Passover was the the event in the life of the children of Israel. Remember I said the Old Testament is the story of a nation? When God called that nation out of Egypt, when he sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go, Pharaoh said no. So God sent plague after plague after plague, and after everyone, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no. Finally, at the end, God sent the final plague. It was the death of the firstborn. And God told the children of Israel that, that the destroyer is going to pass through the land and he's going to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt to show that he's in control, even of Pharaoh's household. But he said to the children of Israel, if you will take a lamb, a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb, and your family will slaughter that lamb, take the blood, dip a, dip a hyssop in the blood, and put it over the doorpost of your house. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over that home. So the blood had to be applied. And when the blood was applied, and by faith that family did it, that night their family didn't lose the firstborn. The next, the next day Pharaoh says, you can go. And the children of Israel were sent out of Egypt with the spoils of victory. And they headed to the promised land. That's the Passover, okay? So here we have Jesus and his disciples coming together to celebrate the Passover because they did it every year as a celebration of that event. And it's interesting that while they're doing that, the Bible says the chief priests and the scribes were looking for treacherous ways to arrest him and to kill him. Jesus and his disciples are worshiping the Father, celebrating deliverance from Egypt, and the religious leaders are trying to find a way that they can end his life. In chapter 14, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests and handed him over to them. When they heard this, they were glad and promised him silver. And he parted their company looking for an opportunity to betray him. In verse 22, as they were eating, as they come together to celebrate that Passover, he took bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is the blood that establishes my covenant. It is shed for many. I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine 
until the day when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. And after they sang a hymn, or the Psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They come together. They celebrate this last supper. We're going to do that in a minute. We call it the Lord's Supper. Some call it communion. It's remembering that last supper, which was remembering that significant Passover event. Passover event. You have applying the blood by faith. You have celebration of applying the blood by faith. And then as we celebrate today, we remember what Christ did for us in shedding of his blood and his death on the cross. Look at verse 32 in chapter 14 now. After this, the Bible says they came to the place named Gethsemane. He and his disciples, he told them, sit here while I pray. Verse 34, when he had said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther and he fell to the ground. And he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In his humanity, Jesus is suffering the pain of knowing that he's about to give his life. He's going to his execution. He's in essence on death row being marched there. And in prayer, in agony, in brokenness, he prays to the Father. If there's any way possible, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass for me. If there's any way possible, could we redeem the world any other way except, from the cross, except by the cross? And the Father's answer, of course, is, no, this is my plan. And I love what Jesus prays. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The Son said to the Father, I will obey your will. He chose to die for you. Did you know that? He chose to die for us. The Bible says that Jesus, no one took his life. He says, I lay it down. It was a decision of his will. And if that wasn't enough, even in the garden, he reminded us, I am submitting my will, my will to the will of the Father. Choosing on our behalf to go to the cross. A former student from Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri wrote a story about uh, spring semester exams. It was a youth ministry class. She writes this, When I got to class, everyone was doing their last minute studying. The teacher came in and said that he would review us before the test. Most of his review came right from the study guide, but there were some things he was reviewing that I had never heard. When questioned about this, he said that they were in the book and we were responsible for everything in the book. Have you all had professors like that? Didn't mean to bring back bad memories, okay? So this student says we couldn't argue with that. Finally, it was time to take the test. The professor says, leave them face down on, on the desk until everyone has one, and then I'll tell you to start. When we turn them over, this student writes, to my astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. The bottom of the last page said this, this is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct you will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. You have just experienced grace. That was that professor letting them know, this is what grace is about. Did you know that that's what grace is about? That the creator of the test took the test for you? 
The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. He said, this is my standard. In in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is perfection, standard holiness. He says, everybody falls short, so I'll just take the test for them. And I will live, Jesus says, I will live a sinless life. The writer of Hebrews said that. And then give my life for them. He took the test for you. In verse 43 of this same chapter. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob. With swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. Judas betrays Jesus. He's taken away to appear before the Sanhedrin. Verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes convened. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the temple police warming himself. Peter was there to be able to tell this story so that Mark could write these words down. Chapter 15, the Bible says, when it was morning, the chief priest had a meeting with the elder scribes and the whole Sanhedrin. Mark is very careful to tell us everybody that was responsible. You know that? He couldn't just say the leaders. He names them. The chief priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin. They handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And we have Jesus' response to him. And back and forth, finally, Pilate releases Barabbas instead of Jesus to the cries of the people. In verse 12, Pilate asked them, what do you want me to do with this one you call king of the Jews? And again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted, crucify him the more. And not willing, and then willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after flogging him, he handed him over to be crucified. To be crucified. Look at verse 24. Again, it just says it simply. They crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription and the charge was written against him, King of the Jews. Every time I read that few words, they crucified him. All the theology all the reality of who He is, of what God did for us, is just summed up in that simple phrase, what He came to be and do was to give His life a ransom for us. He's crucified. A Baptist church was in Bangladesh showing the Jesus film. They put a projector up and show, put a big sheet or a blanket and show it on the, on the wall and there was a group watching the Jesus film. And what they do is they take the story of the life of Christ and they put it in that language of whatever country. And they're showing this. And it came to this part that I just read about the, the crucifixion. And while they're, while they're showing this, the crowd obviously watching it becomes very upset and they're crying and they're emotionally upset and, and they're, they're traumatized by what's taking place. And a little boy stands up and says, it's okay, don't be afraid. He gets up. I've seen it before. He gets up. It's called the resurrection. In chapter 16 of Mark, 
The Bible says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they could anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And they looked up and they observed the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in long white robes sitting on the right side. And they were amazed and alarmed. Don't be alarmed, verse 6, he says. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. For me, the, the power of the simple phrase, they crucified him, is, is, is just as uh, amazing. But the even more, the power of the phrase, he's not here, he's risen. Those two truths are the gospel. He died, he rose again for us. For us. Let me just move to the last section here and conclude with the post-resurrection appearances. This time is about 40 days. Mark chapter 16, verse 10 says, once they've seen he's alive, there's these, the, the followers of Christ are trying to tell everybody he's alive. She went and reported to those who had been with him and they were mourning and weeping. And yet when they heard he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. Then after this, he appeared in a different form to the two walking on their way into the country, those on the road to Emmaus. And they went and reported it to the rest and they did not believe them either. And here's, here's what I just want to leave us with as we wrap up here. These post-resurrection appearances, what you have is people seeing him and telling others about it. They're, they're, they're saying, I have a story. My story is Jesus is alive and I want you to know it because he's alive and he wasn't believed. They weren't believed. Because I believe part of what the deal was is there needed to be a life that backed up that testimony. They needed to see the reality that he was alive. And those after this, after Jesus ascended to the Father, the thing that gave credibility to their testimony was their transformed lives. Their transformed lives. So there's my question to kind of wrap up with. Do you have a story? Have you encountered the resurrected Christ? And are you telling others about it? And are you living a life that backs up that story? Joe Stoll says this. I love it. He says, apart from our activities on Sunday and our conformity to the external codes of do's and don'ts, the world doesn't notice much difference. All they see, all, all that they are left to see in Christianity is the loss of a day of leisure on the weekend and the denial of some common pleasures. Few people find that kind of Christianity compelling. Is the Christianity that you're living out a transformed life that the world looks at you and they find it a compelling argument? Listen, it's not enough to know the story. You need to know the source of the story and you need to live a life that's transformed by His grace. I pray we would do that. Let's pray together.